Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be beginning in verse 12 and reading through chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand, than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours, in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intend to come to you before, I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you, that all my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Let's pray once more. Jesus, we pray that we as your church, as your people, as sheep of a good shepherd, would see Paul's heart as it imitates Christ's heart, and we would be drawn towards this love for the church, love for the people of God. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, that you would illuminate the eyes of our understanding so that we can know the things we need to know and love the way we need to love and, and see Christ high and lifted up so that we can run towards him faithfully. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for this church that we get to be in and, and study it with. We pray that you'd be glorified by the time we spend now. Amen. Amen. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which would be a chapter a lot easier to understand than the one we're in, just because of the sentence length and the way Paul puts words together. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul wrote these famous words, Now continue faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And we believe that. We believe that that is more than just a poetic principle. Uh, we believe that these are truths that are lived out and can be seen in 3D. 
uh, in the way that God's people live and and treat one another. In 2 Corinthians, we see these priorities lived out. There's the faith of the Corinthians that he's concerned about and the emphasis on their faith. And in verse 24, we say, by faith you stand. There's, there's Paul's undying optimism in this chapter, confidence in the Corinthians' sainthood that has to be from God himself. And, and then there's Paul's hope that they will understand what he's writing to them. He, he says, you're going to get it. You're going to get the whole thing. You get in part right now, but you're going to get it. I know we're going to get you there. We see Paul's faith. We see Paul's hope. And we see Paul's great love for the church that we see all throughout 2 Corinthians with more painful clarity than in most of his letters. We see Paul's love for the church here in 2 Corinthians with a, a kind of realism that most of his other letters just, just lack. As we work through these verses, have your eyes attuned to these things, and especially Paul's great love for the church. In verse 15, which is kind of the start of a section, he says, and, and in this confidence, I intended to come to you. Now, his intent to go visit them is kind of uh, the topic at hand, what he's defending. He's explaining why he intended to come and then didn't. Um, but this confidence that Paul has is seen in verse 13. He says, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. And in verse 12, before this, it shows another confidence. It's that his reputation, the reputation of Paul and his team, it's a good one. And they know they've been faithful in that which they've been entrusted. He even calls it his reason for boasting. He says, I'm confident that we did the job well when we were with you. And I'm confident that to put it in a different uh, turn of phrase, he is faithful to complete the good work that he's begun. This is Paul's confidence. Um, he's confident in his testimony that his ministry was one of some sincerity. He's confident in these two things, that he did his job of testifying of Christ and that Christ will be known among them. Even though Corinth and Paul, they've had some rough patches even though Paul has been rejected before by this church, even though conditions at this moment as he's writing this letter are, are somewhat tense, Paul is confident and optimistic that his message will get through to the hearts of these saints. So armed with this confidence, he said, I was confident of these things. I intended to come visit you on the way to Macedonia and on my way back. This yo-yo trip would give them a second benefit, two visits in one one missionary journey, the way Paul saw it is that he would be coming to them to bless them. His intention was to benefit them. Later in the chapter, he says, it's your joy that I'm working for. And he's planning on involving them in his outreach in Judea. We talked about this in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, how they were to take up a collection for the poor and be kind of Paul's sending church out of Achaia into Judea. Now, when Paul is talking about these travel plans, he comes across as a bit defensive. He says, you think, you think I planned this lightly according to the flesh? You think it was just yes, yes, no, no, and there's that confusing bit that we're going to have to parse a little bit? Um, it seems like he's, he's intent on giving the reason for the trip, showing that perhaps there had been accusations against Paul that he feels need to be corrected. And we see those in verse 17 and 18. He says, therefore, when I was planning this, meaning to come through Corinth twice, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Why is Paul talking like this? I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. Because Paul, like everyone, 
makes plans that don't pan out as expected. And the Corinthians, like children everywhere, throw a huge fit when mom and dad have said, I know I said we'd do it that way, but something came up and now we can't do it that way. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. The Corinthians were accusing Paul of being unfaithful, of saying yes and meaning no, of planning one way and then saying, well, yeah, I didn't actually mean it though. And so the Corinthians are thinking Paul is untrustworthy, unreliable, because he said he'd come back through on his way from, from uh, where was it, Macedonia, and, and, and he didn't. He didn't do it. Actually, it probably went down something like this. He did visit them on his way to Macedonia, just like he hoped to do. But in chapter two, he says, I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Meaning the first trip, the first visit was not fun. See, after writing 1 Corinthians and saying, I'm coming to see you this winter, he said that in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul then goes to Corinth and it is not a nice visit. Now, I think anyone could have seen this coming. Paul had said in 1 Corinthians, near the end of several chapters of correction, telling him you did this wrong, you got to correct this, you got to excommunicate that guy. Don't let me see you doing that again. And then in chapter 11, verse 34, he says, and the rest, meaning a lot more, I will set in order when I come. Well, he tried to do that, but the process was painful. So Paul says, I'm not going to go back to do that again. I'm not going to go and just start back in the same kind of fight without some sort of resolution. So instead of visiting on his way back, he writes a letter. So, uh, sometimes there's a certain kind of conflict that requires the distance that a letter can offer. Now, word of caution and practical advice. Paul went face to face with this church when, when he could and when they had problems that needed to be addressed. And then once he determined that this would be too painful to repeat, and I think we can conclude too ineffective to be of value, then he wrote a letter. If you find yourself in need of conflict resolution, don't skip steps. Jesus says to go to your brother when he's offended you. Do that first. Face-to-face -face is better if you can manage it. But sometimes, like in this case with Corinth, things had become too heated, too volatile, and a letter written would have been more effective at showing Paul's heart without the resistance that his presence would have brought. Now, I want to read verse 23. I know I'm kind of going out of order here, but I want to read verse 23 and then into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 again. So verse 23 of chapter 1, he says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Okay, skip verse 24 for now and then go into chapter 2. It says, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. But if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So Paul didn't visit like he said he would. They say, Paul's unfaithful. He said yes, he meant no. He didn't come in and he says, no, 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 that's not what happened. And now he's saying, I didn't come to you because of my love for you. I wrote that hard letter to you because of my love for you. He wrote a letter instead of visiting because the visit would have only brought sorrow. But the letter he wrote contained plenty of sorrow too. Paul wrote it with anguish of heart, with many tears, not to make the Corinthians sad, but to show them that he loved them 
so very much. Now, when you read in chapter 1, when you look at how Paul talks about his traveling plans, it starts to make a little bit more sense now. He's saying, I didn't take these things lightly. I wasn't just saying, I'll drop by, and then I changed my mind because I didn't feel like making the trip. His plans, he says, were not according to the flesh, not according to whim. Paul is assuring the Corinthians that all of his decisions were made as an apostle, as a servant of God, with God's will and the church's good at the forefront of his mind and at the top of his priorities. It's a really long, kind of convoluted, hard to understand way of Paul saying, guys, I love you. That's why I do everything I do. It's because I love the church. Second Corinthians has been called by some the, the other pastoral epistle. Uh, the pastoral epistles in the New Testament are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And they're called pastoral epistles because they are written to pastors of churches. 2nd Corinthians is not written to a pastor, but it shows Pastor Paul in 3D and living color. It's not instructions to a pastor necessarily, but it does show us a look at the heart of ministry. And please don't take that as a reason for you to stop listening closely now because you're not a pastor. Let me invite you to remember Paul's encouragement in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In 2 Corinthians, we see Paul imitate Christ in his brokenhearted love for an imperfect church. And we see his dedication to suffering for the cause of the gospel. That love comes from Jesus. It can't come from any other place. He is the one who we are called to imitate, and he is the source for this drive to love so selflessly at such great expense to self. And, and this, um, this imitation includes, this imitation of Christ includes imitation in his sufferings and in his sorrow. And we see Paul do that. If you want to look at perfect suffering, of course, we have to look to Jesus himself. Praise God that we can. But to see the life of Christ formed in an imperfect Christian, we can look to Paul. He is the example that we're given. And just like there are promises of God that are less than appealing, like all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Don't like that one. Uh, there's also examples in Scripture for us to follow that we would not choose to follow on our own. The sufferings of Christ exemplified for us in the sufferings of Paul are things that we are called, invited to imitate, not just study. The imitation of Christ will inevitably include the imitation of his sorrows. We're told to take up our cross and follow him. If you have your doubts, if you wonder if this is really the case, then just remember, this may be a little bit more palatable at first, you are called to love. Can we get on the same page with that one at least? That's extremely clear in scripture and hopefully in my preaching. You are called to love others. If I say you're called to suffer, there's a part of you that's going to resist that and say, well, but really? Uh, but if I say you're called to love, most of you can nod to that and say, okay, that checks out. That's, that's pretty Christian. They're the same thing. C.S. Lewis, he said this, he said, if you love deeply, you're going to get hurt badly, but it's still worth it. In chapter 2, verse 4, we see that it was Paul's abundant love that caused his affliction and anguish. When we talk about the sufferings of Christ or the sufferings of Paul, we are talking about the natural byproducts of deep, holy love. Pain is a result of loving deeply. Now, if that doesn't 
ring true or if there's that voice in the back of your mind that says, that doesn't sound like quite the way it's supposed to be. You're right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's going to be 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more sorrow. But until then, we are caught in the in-between in a fallen state where the heavenly godly treasure of love is handled and experienced by fallen creatures like us and exists in a sin-stained world. We are loving against evil in the hope of heaven. Of course it's going to hurt. Paul's love resulted in Paul's sorrow. But there's another result. There's a, there's a result of a different kind. There's another thing that flows from love or really just, uh, can describe this kind of love for people, and it's this strong desire for their good, this all-consuming desire for their best. And this is expressed most clearly in Paul's single-minded focus on the preaching of the gospel. Remember in chapter 1, long time ago, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, I have determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He gave them Christ and Christ alone because he loved them. Now, it seems likely that some of the Corinthians were casting doubt on Paul's love for the church because he didn't visit them like he had initially planned to. After that first painful visit, he writes a letter instead, and it's a doozy. It's full of sorrow, and it causes pain as well. Now, Sean talked last week about Paul's authority and how his apostleship was called into question. Um, and then now it's not just his rank, but it's his heart that the Corinthians doubted and that Paul needs to defend. So now Paul is assuring them that the real evidence for his care for them is not that he you know, didn't see them. The evidence for his care and love for the church is that he made sure they received the full gospel. In verse 19, he says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. The matter of importance is Jesus Christ. And Paul, in defending himself, which he does a lot of in 2 Corinthians, you're going to get tired of it, but he, he often returns to this point. I preach the gospel to you. That's the evidence of his apostleship, and it's the evidence of his love for the church. But he's doing something else important here by bringing the focus back to the central truth. He's showing Christ to be absolutely faithful and consistent. I, I think this is the humility and the glory of Paul. When his enemies, who he loves, by the way, very Christ-like of him, when his enemies would say, you are faithless, Paul, Paul's best answer is this, Christ is faithful. Christ has been faithful to you. He doesn't admit to being faithless. He offers a personal defense as well, but that's not what he wants them to most, he, that's not what he wants to spend the most ink on as he writes. He wants to tell them, you have no reason to doubt the gospel. Just because you see something in me you don't like, and I'll explain why you're wrong about that in a second, I am no excuse for you to doubt the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Christ is faithful. The promises of Christ are faithful. And you might be all worked into a fit because you think that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are these wishy-washy guys and they don't kind of, he's like, you know what though? You can count on Christ. So talk about what matters. Get your mind back where it belongs. Christ is faithful. The promise of Christ is faithful. Even if Paul did fail in the way they thought he did, 
This would not affect the promises of Christ in the least. And this is true for any person, any Christian leader, any role model you may have had that didn't live up to your expectations or the standard that Scripture sets. The weakness of man cannot reduce the strength of God. In fact, Paul will get into that later in the book and say that the weakness of people can actually show forth the strength of God. His strength is made perfect in weakness. That's later in this book. There is no human failure that can reduce the strength of the promise in verse 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. That is a big statement, and it shows, again, Paul's priorities. Because he is defensive, he's been personally attacked, you can see all of that, but he's still making a point to say, Christ is faithful. That's more important than me proving to you that my travel plans fit into a better apostolic plan. If you think what you want about that, Christ is faithful. You have to believe that. Don't get distracted. What God has promised, he has promised in Christ. And in Christ, these promises are yes and amen. The good things God has promised to you, he has promised them in Christ. The blessings that God desires to give you, he gives to you in Christ. There's the idea of saying yes and meaning no, or saying yes and then going back on your word. We've encountered people like that. The Corinthians thought they had encountered someone like that in Paul. But God stands out in beautiful contrast to show his faithfulness with power and clarity. God does not go back on his word. He has made promises in Christ, and every one of those promises is yes and amen. Great is thy faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with thee. God the Father has not denied the Son any blessing. He has received all glory, all honor, all power. Those blessings are assured. Our experience or receipt of those blessings depend now on our position in Christ which is why our goal is to be united with the Son of God. And it's why the encouragement of Jesus in the upper room is to abide in me. Why? Because that's where all the blessings are. That's where all the promises are. It's in Christ. Now, this, this isn't really the theme of Paul's conversation here, but please allow the tangent. It is always a corruption to seek the gift apart from the giver. And in the same way, it is foolishness to desire the promises of God apart from the one in whom those promises are. To say that another way, it is a mistake to think that God desires to give good things apart from Christ. He won't do it. He never has. He gives us his son, and it is in him that all the rest of the promises find their place. As we are in Christ, abiding in Christ, being united to Christ, having communion with Christ, having the life of Christ formed in us, growing up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. These are all Pauline you know, phrases. This is how Paul talks about the Christian life in his letters. As we do that, as we mature in this fellowship union with Christ, the, these yes and amen promises find their place and this brings glory back to God. Paul says that these promises were to, to the glory of God through us. The faithfulness of God was seen clearly in the lives of his servants, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and in the salvation of the people in Corinth who had been in darkness but had then had been saved and brought in to marvelous light. 
God gets the glory for those things. God works in people and through people to reveal his glory. The lives of his servants, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, as, as they were in Christ, they spoke of the faithfulness of God. The promises of God could be seen in their lives. It was in their lives that God would reveal his own goodness, faithfulness, and generosity. And what you see Paul doing here, even though he is making a personal defense and he's explaining his actions, it's clearly beyond personal. He's really defending the work of God in him and in his church. God is still the focus, and it is the Lord who Paul is drawing attention to. Even in this introduction when he talks about how his travel plans didn't go the way they first expected, which is a weird thing for the Holy Spirit to inspire, right, and put in the book forever and ever and ever, amen. But look how quickly Paul, go, how quickly and easily Paul shifts from his, his travel blog to some very major league theology, Right here in verse 21, it says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Did you notice the Trinity? Isn't that cool? Last week was Pentecost Sunday. Today, according to the church calendar, is Trinity Sunday. And here we find the doctrine of the Trinity in our text. We are uh, established, Paul says, in Christ it is God the Father who has done this, and he has anointed us, there's the Spirit, and has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There are places in 1 Corinthians we saw Paul do the same thing. If you look, you'll notice this happens in his other letters too. He'll bring Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into a sentence like this, often right at the beginning of his letters. 1 Corinthians was an extremely practical letter. It was dealing with specific questions that the church had asked. But that didn't stop it from being a very theological letter. 2 Corinthians, it's a very personal letter. It's personal for Paul and it's personal for the church he's writing to. But in the same way, that doesn't stop Paul from including profound theology. The word Trinity uh, wouldn't be used or coined for another 150 years or so. But the concept was central to Paul's view of God. And Paul's view of God couldn't help but affect how he saw himself and his work and the church and the world the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was not peripheral. It was central and it was ingrained in Paul's thinking. And he's telling the church in some subtle ways and some not so subtle ways, you guys got to get your mind back on what's important. It's God who does the work in you. It's God who has united us. It's God who's anointed us with the Holy Spirit. We talked about abiding in Christ. Here it is again. Paul says that God, that's the he at the beginning of verse 21, establishes us with you. That's Paul and his team with the Corinthian church. He says he's established us with you in Christ. This is so much more than Paul saying to these people who were angry with him and opposed to him, hey guys, we're, we're in this together. He's saying we're in Christ together and God has done this. So you better get used to it because that's, that's the reality we are in Christ together. He has fixed us here. He has established us here. There's this truth of Christian unity that Paul believes and preaches, not as an ideal, but as a truth to be believed and lived, lived out. Even if the Corinthians are rejecting Paul, even if Paul has to write some pretty strong words to the Corinthians, even if they don't want him to come visit, or even if he never sees them again, that would not change the fact that there is no division in Christ. That's what Paul believes. 
It is God who's established both Paul and the Corinthians in Christ. Please see, whatever divisions you may have witnessed or experienced in the church, please see those divisions through this lens. The people at, you know, that church or this church who have hurt you, the other Christians that you disagree with, the weird cousins, you know, they're still technically Christians, but whatever. The ones you avoid like the plague or the ones you merely roll your eyes at. God has established you with them in Christ. That's your family. God has anointed you with them. The anointing that you have of the Holy Spirit is not to be experienced apart from them. He's put you together in the same capital C church and made you by his miraculous creative power, one body with them in Christ. He has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You'll remember the role of the spirit in the church was a big topic in 1 Corinthians. And it was an issue that was dividing the church when it was God's will and uh, it was dividing the church instead of doing the will of God, which is uniting the church. It was God's will and Paul's intention to see the spirit as a uniting force. Both 1 and 2 Corinthians are remarkably hopeful, almost to the point of being naive. Even with all the moral issues addressed in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls them saints and has confidence in their spiritual state and their spiritual growth. Since he wrote that, Paul and the Corinthians have been through a rough patch. You would think that this hope already remarkable would have been weakened by now and by how the Corinthians received Paul's last letter and his last visit. However, this is not the case. Even though Paul doesn't think it wise for him to sit in the same room with some of these people, that's how mad they are. He still sees them as sealed, established Christians who have a guarantee, not necessarily of their own moral excellence, but of God's firm hold on his erring children. He is jealous for his people and he'll have his way. I wonder if some of these verses are Paul's attempt to prepare himself for the rest of the letter, to get his head in the right space. The greatest saints of God in scripture spend a good amount of time preaching to themselves. You've probably noticed. Think of David. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. No, really, do it. I think that's in the PS part. Um, Paul probably needs these words as much as the Corinthians do. As one who had been rejected and, and really abused by the church that he loves so dearly, he needs to base his thinking on this sure foundation and not just the behaviors of some of these people. He needs to base his thinking on this theology. God establishes his people. God builds his church. God holds those whom he loves. It was important for Paul to remind himself of this since he could have easily despaired if he thought that he was the one holding things together. It is God, not Paul, who is Lord over his church. Paul reaffirms this in verse 24. Read verse 23 and 24. He says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. We already mentioned his reasoning for not coming to Corinth. Verse 23 just states in emphatic language that he did it for their sakes, not only his own. He knew that the impact of a visit like that would be unpleasant. But verse 24 reaffir reaffirms the Lord's sovereignty over his church. Paul's plans to visit or not visit, and his decision to write a letter instead of having a conflict face-to-face, -face, these, are, 
These are human decisions, but the divine author of their faith was the same. Paul's visit or his absence, these are not things that could have a substantial effect on the foundations of the Corinthians' faith. And and they were not things that could overthrow the plans of God. Paul wasn't the one who had dominion over their faith. And it was by faith that they would stand. Nothing else. Not, Not faith in Paul. Faith in God who changes not. His compassions, they fail not. It may not be immediately clear how this verse fits in with the chapter, but I hope you can see, begin to see the connection here as it existed in the heart of Paul. He's been accused on the one hand of not caring for the Corinthians. He didn't visit them when he said he would. He's also been accused on the other hand of being a sort of tyrant, claiming more authority than is his due. That's why they question his apostleship. They they basically say, Paul, what gives you the right? Paul responds by saying that he really truly is an apostle. And elsewhere, he calls them their spiritual, he calls himself their spiritual father. But he's also putting himself in the position, not of a tyrant who has dominion over their faith, but as a fellow worker who has their joy as his main objective. He's like, I work for you. My work is done so that you can have joy. As we follow the brokenhearted Paul through 2 Corinthians and imitate him, As he imitates Christ, we see the role that we are called to in the church of God. We work with others and we care for their joy. You've never met someone who is Lord over your faith, only the Lord. The Christians you've met aren't over you or under you. They do not pull strings that affect your salvation in any way. They are your co-workers for your joy. And we work together for the joy of one another. Now, all of that's fine on paper, but looking at the sufferings of Paul and how these pages are simultaneously dripping with pain and love, we see that without the Holy Spirit's work, this is impossible. Without a soul change, this is impossible. We have similar experiences in the natural realm that we may draw some comparisons with. There's the most obvious one maybe being of that of parent and child, which Paul uh, compares himself as their father. Um, He considers them his wayward children. The love and the hurt that Paul experiences echo that of a parent and a child. There's a kind of love that probably can't really be understood without firsthand experience. The love of a mother for her child can be experienced by those who have become mothers, and that's pretty much where that list ends. And something similar has happened to Paul. He He didn't decide to be the father figure to the Corinthians. He was made an apostle by the will of God. A change took place. He was changed. He became a father to them and and is living and moving and having his being in God the Father who is sharing his heart with Paul. He became a father to them and the love of God was poured out into his heart by the Holy Spirit. And along with this role, along with this becoming of a family, Paul's heart developed the capacity for this kind of love and this kind of pain. And this is part invitation and part warning. God will develop your heart in this way as well. He will shape your heart into something that resembles the Father's heart. We know this to be true. You're being shaped into the image of Christ, right? You're becoming like God, right? No one has suffered more than the Father of Jesus Christ. As you imitate Christ, you won't just become a nicer person because Christ is much more than just a nice person. He is a jealous, gentle, suffering servant who loves deeply, who is hurt deeply, and still says it's worth it. 
for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. As the Holy Spirit shapes you into the image of Christ, you will grow in your capacity to love, which will take its form in taking up a cross. But he'll also give you a clear vision of the joy that's ahead. You're being called to lay down your life, and laying down your life hurts, but this is what love is, and it's worth it. As we imitate Paul in this, we know that we're just we're really just following Paul in the imitation of Christ, who again, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And Paul, in describing his sufferings, he says they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that's being prepared. Let us pray for the Holy Spirit to pour out the love of God into our hearts as he has promised. This love that Paul has for the church is a love that the Holy Spirit desires to give his people. As Paul invites us to imitate him as he imitates Christ, this is one of those ways where this invitation can become real, where we become lovers of God's people, even to these extremes, knowing that this is the heart that God has for his people that he's willing to share with us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your great love that you have for us. We thank you that your love for us is not ineffective, but that it is powerful and mighty and substantial. We pray that as, as you love this church, that this church would imitate you in your love. Holy Spirit, pour out the love of God into our hearts so that we can resemble you, so we can share in the Father's heart, even the Father's pain. Bless us, bless us in every way that we need blessing. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.